Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Morning, everybody. So we're going to be looking at slides today. I know that's unusual for Sunday School at Trinity. So if you want to, take a minute to come out. I'll give you 30 seconds to do that. The real question is whether anyone's figured out how to pronounce the Turkish city name up on the screen right now. Nope. Those of you who can't even read it in the back. All right, let's get started. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for, thank you for the weather outside. Thank you for the reminder of, your, of both your grace as the rain comes down and waters the earth, as well as your power when the hail comes down and thunders on the roof. Heavenly Father, we thank, you for, we thank you that you are both good and sovereign over us today. And we thank you, Lord, as hard as tragedy and disaster is when it comes. Uh, it would be, we thank you that even that is within you. We can take comfort knowing that even that is within your control. Lord, bless us this morning as we consider your works for a few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, good to have you all here this morning. So I'm going to be talking for a few, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, what I do the rest of the week uh, for a few minutes. Back in, um, we're going to be talking about a disaster response on the other side of the world that I was blessed to be a part of um, a few months back. Some of you all have been asking to see some of the photos and videos that I took um, for a while, and I finally managed to pull all that together into something that we're going to look at here today. Um, I want to start by reading from Acts chapter 11, verse 10 through 26. Excuse me, Acts chapter 11, verse 19 through 26. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them, encourage them all with resolute hearts to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. A little backstory, a uh, little backstory on myself and my, uh, my day job as we get started. I work for a Christian engineering charity, uh, headquartered in Charleston, South Carolina, just down the road, uh, but with permanent offices all over the world. Many uh, many when I say global water crisis, it's not something that a lot of people are familiar with. So let me try to bring it home for just a minute. So when you, were, when you got up this morning and, and had that funny taste in your mouth and wanted to go wash it down, where did you go? No, seriously, this is the audience participation right now. <laughs> where did the sink? And you got water. And did you have any concerns about that water when it came out? Were you worried it would be, look brown? Were you worried it, had something, it would have something in it that you, it shouldn't? Did you have to, you got it in your, that, that water was in your sink was in your kitchen, wasn't it? It wasn't like in your backyard, it wasn't in a stream, it wasn't at a well two and a half miles away. 
Yeah, we're very, very blessed. One of, the hard thing, one of the hard things about my work is that many people don't realize that water is hard to come by in much of the world. It's hard to come by. When you have it, it's not, uh, when you have it, it can make you sick. Uh, very, often, uh, very often when you get there, you've got to fight off, you know, wildebeest and a lot of other people to get it. There's many, many barriers between people and water around the world. Numbers vary on it, but it can be as high, uh, but many feel as, as many as two billion people around the world lack access to safe water. The reasons for that are multifaceted. Some people just don't have it. Some people have it, but it's, uh, it's almost as dangerous to drink it as it is to not drink it. Unfortunately, after air, nothing's more important to the human body than, wa than water. People spend, in many cases, so that means that people will do anything they have to to get water, whatever it's, it's like. So the impact of the global water crisis isn't just felt in thirst, uh, like you might, or sickness, which are the most obvious things. It's also, it's also means uh, lost time. Kids leave, um, over, you know, over 440 million days of school are missed by children because they're walking to get water for their families every single day. Uh, particularly in, there, in many regions of the world, um, young children, especially young girls, walk an average of three miles every day just to collect water and bring it back to their families. So that's, so that's time and opportunity lost because of water scarcity. And then, fit, and then this is always the most amazing thing to me, 50% of the world's hospital beds right now are filled with people who are there because of water-related illness. Something they drank, something that was in the water that shouldn't have been there, that's now inside their bodies, and it's making them very, very sick. A lot of people will die, but a lot of people will just be sick over and over and over again because they can't escape the source of the sickness that's coming to them. Back in 2001, um, so I work for, so the charity I work for is called Water Mission, and it was founded back in 2001 by the, uh, by the two people you see in the center of the photo here, George and Molly Green. George and Molly Green were running an engineering firm down in Charleston, uh, but they had, a, they had a family member engaged in mission work down in Honduras. And in the, in the, course, of a, and in the course of one of the many hurricanes that, uh, that go plowing through Central America, they had an opportunity to go down and, do, and help with disaster relief in Honduras back in the late 90s. And you can see, and this is a very famous photo at Water Mission. If you ever come visit our headquarters, you'll see this all over the place. The, uh, the water that's coming out of that hose in there it's coming, from a, it's coming from a river, a river that was known uh, to locals in the area as the River of Death because the quality of the water was so bad. If you looked at the river, it, would, uh, if you looked at the river, it was brown, it was murky, uh, but honestly, you know, the things making it brown and murky were the least of the problems in this stuff. There was so much bacteria, there's so much bacteria and life living in it, uh, it was deadly to drink. And so what, but what's coming out of there is nice and clear and safe. And that's thanks to George Mollet. That's thanks to a, back of, a literal back of the napkin uh, water filtration design that George put together in just a few days and ship, had the equipment shipped down to Honduras. They ran the water from the River of Death through their filtration system, and nobody wanted to drink it because they knew where it came from. And so Molly said, well, forget this. And she grabbed the hose and took the very first sip out of the new system. And as soon as they saw that, um, as soon as they saw her put her money where her mouth is, literally, then the rest of the community started collecting water. Uh, so this, this photo is called The First Sip, and it wasn't the beginning of water mission, it was the beginning of the idea of water mission. George Molly went back to their engineering firm, but they couldn't get the, 
the thought of the need they had seen out of their heads. And so a few years later in 2001, they founded the organization that I now work for, Water Mission. And so we're based, and Water Mission's work is to try to bring safe water around the world. Uh, we're a bunch of, uh, it's done through a bunch of very smart engineers, of which I am not one. Uh, I work in marketing, uh, so, I have, so I have no soul. <laughs> but I get to talk about all the people who do. Because as we bring safe water around the world, we also bring the living water message of Jesus Christ. Because as important as water is to the body, Christ is even more important to the soul. So when people thirst for water, we want to fill that need and use as an opportunity to tell, them that, to tell them about the needs of their soul and for the Lord Jesus. We, uh, we, typically, we work in two ways. We do what's called community development. So we'll go into developing communities, particularly rural, last, what we call rural last mile communities, those way out at the end of roads or way beyond where the road ended. People who don't get served by much of anything else. That's where we like to go. But we also continue to do what George and Molly did back in, back in late 90s and go where there are disaster areas. Uh, there's many, many needs after a hurricane, an earthquake, um, man-made crisis, uh, man-made crisis. There's a lot of things, but water is one of them. Infrastructure, water, water infrastructure is very, very fragile. It can get damp. You know, a pipe gets cut, filtration system goes down. There's no power to run. You know, power to run pumps, and then people, and all of a sudden, people are either thirsty, or the water they're drinking becomes unsafe very, very quickly. Back in February, back in February this year, um, the one of the largest earthquakes in Turkey's history. Uh, hit the uh, hit the southern southern uh, southern portion of the country. You can see here. Uh, most people are familiar with Istanbul. Istanbul sits right on the literal dividing line between Europe to the west and Asia to the east. To the uh, there's a little bit of Turkey sticking up o sticking over into Europe to the left of Istanbul. That's the region known as Thrace. And then everything to the right is Anatolia. And so if you look down at the, so you'll see Istanbul, Ankara is the, Ankara is the current capital of Turkey. Adana is a city down here in the south, right on the Mediterranean, north of Cyprus. And then that name that nobody, that everybody was struggling to pronounce is Karaman Mirage. And on February 6th, around four in the, around quarter after four in the morning, 7.8 earthquake hit just south of Karaman Mirage, just north of the city of Gaziantep. And then just a few hours later, a 7.7, .7, a second earthquake at just about the same magnitude hit just north of Karma and Marash. These, these two earthquakes would have been bad enough on their own. And they have immediately affected a region in southern Turkey about the size of the country of Germany. The trouble is, it wasn't just these two. There were about 30,000 aftershocks that just kept happening in the days that followed these two main quakes. I was on a, uh, and early on in Water Mission's response, I was actually on a call with our director of disaster response. He was in Turkey at the time. And we were talking to him just about the response, how things are going. He had to say, oh, hang on, everything's shaking around here. And so we kind of listen, and we can hear glass shattering and rumbling in the background of the call. And then a few minutes later, he's like, yeah, I'm back, we're fine. That's why, it's, that's why he's the head of disaster response, because he's real chill in those situations. Uh, but it would just get, this region just got hit, and then hit again again and again and again. Uh, la latest, numbers, uh, latest numbers put the total number of deaths at 50, just over 59,000, and millions of people displaced all over the, all over the country. And, there's, and a lot of people displaced, a lot of people who were displaced by this disaster had been dis displaced before, which we're going to talk about in a minute. 
Um, also wanted to point, this is the, it is the worst earthquake. Um, this area of the Middle East is very, very, is uh, ge geologically very active. Uh, earthquakes are definitely not a new thing. They've been happening for a long time. But this was the, this was the most severe one that Turkey's had in its modern history. And we believe it's probably the worst that the region has seen since 526 AD. Um, this was a big, big mess. So I try to keep this in mind. Um, Adana is where I was, uh, when I went in April, a couple, of, a couple of months into water missions response, the team was stationed at the city of Adana, which was relatively unaffected by the quakes. It was more, uh, it was more to the east uh, where most of the damage had done. And most of our work was focused in Karaman Marash, or just Marash for short, and the city of Antakya, or as we would know it in history, at the city of Antioch. Um, down, down in the very southern tip. Literally, I don't know if you can see the lines here, it's a little blurry, but Antioch is in a region called the Hatay province, and it's just kind of stuck in between the Mediterranean to the east and Syria to the west. It's just kind of this little, uh, little bit of Turkey that's sticking down in there. Um, this, is just a, this is just a little bit of footage that I shot out of the back of a car when we driving through Antakya. Um, you're going to notice, you're going to notice some of the destruction here, and then you're going to notice a lot of other things that look pretty, pretty, pretty normal. Um, it was, uh, as you first drove up on some of the cities while we were there, it was interesting because many, you know, from a distance, things didn't look that different. There were still buildings standing, there were still, uh, they still seemed to be intact, you could, you know, there's still traffic on the road. It wasn't until you got closer in and saw where buildings had been that were no longer there. When you saw the, uh, you know, you saw whole streets that had to be cleared with the rubble pushed to one side, and then the buildings that were still standing were dark and empty. All the glass had shattered and was out. And then, as was when you got up, that you got to see the, all the cracks running through the walls. So while the stuff was still standing, it wasn't safe to go in anymore. And so people were, uh, so in many cases, what we're going to see here in a minute, many people, many people were living in their front yards with their former home, living in, literally in the shadows of their former homes behind them. Thinking about the living water side of the work we do, uh, everything that my, uh, Mikhail's been reading to us from Revelation, and that very famously starts out with the letters that the Lord Jesus has John write to the seven churches. And all seven of those churches are in modern-day Turkey. They would all, they'd be all a little bit to the north, the north and west of uh, where I was. But Antioch, you know, Antioch, where our forebears were first called Christians, was right where we were. And Tarsus, that you know, Tarsus, where the Apostle Paul was from, was just uh, was was pretty was just a couple of hours outside of Adana, where we were. Uh, the team was based. This was this was Christianity's front yard, uh, and this was where the early missionary activity of the church started. And so, one of the common conversations that I had with our interpreter, our interpreter was a young man, a college student from Istanbul. Uh, he's a he's a brother in Christ, and he had been for a, uh, but relatively new. He was, actually, he was actually on a holiday from school when the disaster hit. He was outside the range, but right before the earthquake hit, he'd been praying for an opportunity to reach, kind of reach out and, and serve others in the way that he realized the Lord had served him. And it was shortly after that the earthquake occurred, and he reached out to a common contact and was put in contact with us. And his professors back in Istanbul, you know, when he asked for a little more time before coming back to school, his professor said, man, you're, all, you're doing great work. Just stay down there. So he stayed with us for months at, because he spoke perfect English as well as, as, well as uh, his native Turkish at the same time. 
what I'd like to do for the next few minutes is just um, kind of talk a little bit about a couple of the projects and communities that I got to visit while I was there. So if you remember that city to the north, uh, Karaman Marash, Marash for short, um, this was a region of the city called Dolka Diralu. If you see that little funny accent over the G, that means you don't pronounce it. So just drop that out and try to pronounce what's left. Turkish is a fascinating language. It's relatively new, although it's got very ancient roots behind it, but it was established with the formation of modern Turkey right after World War I. It's completely phonetic, so even though the words look long and kind of scary, just pronounce everything except for the G's, the, the funny-looking G's, and you'll, you'll usually get pretty close um, in most cases. So it's not a hard language to pick up. One of my favorite, uh, one of the, my favorite things there was listening to our, our team lead, his name was John, John's from Central Texas, and he wears cowboy boots everywhere, and you know, likes to hook his thumbs in his belt and, and when he strides in a room and speaks with the broadest Texas accent ever. He has an incredible ear for language, however. He can pick up languages really, really fast. And even if he doesn't get them right, a Texas accent is beloved the world over. And so, <laughs> as he would try to, you know, as he would be butchering the beautiful Turkish language, you just see these warm smiles light up on everyone's faces as they gently try to help John along. By the time I got there, his Turkish was actually getting pretty good. And uh, he could just walk in a room, know no one, and make friends instantly. That's why he was leading the team, because that's what disaster response is. It's not like our other work. There's no infrastructure. There's no supplies. There's nothing, there's nothing we can count on. It's all just about building relationships and uh, getting there, um, you know, and you know, building people's trust, finding the need, finding the people who can come alongside and help what we do. Um, I'm thankful I was there with just a camera. I was there to document the, you know, the great work that had been done, the need that still remained to report back to donors and partners um, here in the U.S. What you can see here is a displacement camp, and we saw these all over the place. Again, those buildings don't look too bad from where you're sitting, but nobody was in them. Many of the people who were down in the tents here in the front had been living in them before the earthquake and had to leave. Anyone who had the resources, as soon as the roads were clear, got out of the disaster areas very, very quickly. But there were many who, who were, because, they were, because of poverty or other reasons, couldn't go anywhere. And so they had to stay put. A large number of them, uh, I'll show this in just a minute, uh, a large number of the residencies placed with camps were Syrian refugees. Um, as many of y'all know, Syria has been engaged in a civil war for many, many years. A lot of people have fled north into Turkey to flee from that. So they had just left, their home, just left their homes in Syria, got into Turkey. Earthquake wiped out their new homes at the same time. So many of the inhabitants, particularly in Marash, um, were Syrian refugees who were living there. Syrian re being a Syrian refugee in Turkey is not much fun. Um, it's, it's already difficult to immigrate to a new country. It's difficult to leave your home behind. And not, they are really not wanted where they are. And so there, and there was actually... Uh, you know, with the early days of the disaster, there was a lot of tension between, uh, between Turks and Syrians, particularly when water was short, because, you know, uh, and there were a lot of disagreement over it. Um, because while the water was there, it wasn't, uh, all the infrastructure to make sure that it was safe and healthy to drink uh, was lost. And so we came, uh, so when we arrived at this camp, you can see here in the bottom left photo, they had a tap stand, they had a tap stand built. Um, that's a concrete structure with a catch basin and a drain in the bottom, and then just simple, and then just simple PVC pipe run through to the back. Uh, it's a water distribution point. So they built that, but there was no, there was nothing to, there was nothing to provide water to it. There's latrines off to the, 
vitrines uh, off to the right, and then this tent you can just see the corner of was a laundry facility. So you can see on the right we've got, um, we've got Tony, one of our Turkish contractors, he's up working hard on a water filtration system, and Derek, one of our engineers, is bossing him around and telling him how to do it properly. Uh, Derek's one of the smartest guys I've ever met, and, one of the, and incredibly godly as well. Uh, he, is, uh, he is an excellent teacher. Uh, there were a few times, which we'll talk about later, where he had to talk me through some engineering on the fly as well. Very glad to have him there. You can see there's a 5,000 liter storage tank behind, uh, behind where Derek's stand, standing, and then, what we and then what Tony's working on is what we call living water treatment system. And it's basically the spiritual descendant of that very first system that George and Molly Green put together for Honduras back in the late 90s. It's designed to be modular, easily shipped, and quickly assembled on site. And it can produce up to 10,000 liters of safe water a day. So we basically bring it in and set it up, install it, and let it fill these tanks. Uh, it, we let it filter the water and then fill these tanks that then feed into the tap stands like you just saw. So bottom left photo, you can see the tap stand again, but now there's a, wa but now there's a safe water system uh, installed behind it. And that is, yep, that's with the tap, taps installed, and it wasn't... We, uh, we had barely finished and tested to make sure the water was safe before, you know, before community residents were starting to come up and fill up jugs and cooking pots and take advantage of what was there. Um, you can see a young Syrian girl there on the right uh, shamelessly holding a branded uh, water mission cup you know, for the photo op. Um, but the, uh, you can always tell the, uh, the Syrian kids all, whenever something, I mean, think about it. You're a little kid. You know, you're eight or under, you're living in a tent camp, you can't go home, nobody likes you, there's nowhere to go, anything new is happening in the community, you're going to be all over it uh, just to see what's going on. So we had kids pretty much everywhere we went. I've got to talk about the, the gentleman on the top left, that's Jeffrey. Jeffrey was another water mission engineer, but instead of coming from the U.S., he came from Indonesia. Jeffrey is one of the bravest men I've ever met. He speaks, uh, he speaks Bahasa, which is one of six different languages spoken on the islands of Indonesia. He speaks no Turkish, and his English is rough. And he flew, you know, he flew from Indonesia and stayed for a month to support our disaster response work there. And, uh, and, he was, and he, when Derek left a few days after this photo was taken, Jeffrey became the lead engineer on the project. And so he kind of, and he had, uh, he was an amazing guy. And it was, and one of the things I'm gonna talk about at the end, make sure I'm not running out of time yet, oh my goodness. Um, is it's, it was glorious to see not only the Lord's people in this part of the world, but to see the Lord's people who had gathered from all over the world uh, for the work that we were doing. It was a municipal water line. And by municipal water line, I mean it was tied in the, the remnants of the municipal water supply, and it was really just a hose spouting water when we first got there. So one of our first things to do is just clap a valve on it and turn it off. And then from there, we would hook it, into the, hook it into the filtration system and run it. So city water, in other words, but city, wa you know, city water that couldn't be trusted anymore. Yeah, city water. And that was pretty common since we were, um, you know, usually we're working in rural communities. In this case, we're in urban environments that have basically been knocked back to the status of a rural community, you know, with their water infrastructure uh, destroyed. So moving a little further south, we're down in the Hatay region. Again, that little, uh, that little piece, that little bit of uh, Turkey in between Syria and the Mediterranean. And we're at the very southern end of it. We're very, 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 very near Aleppo. 
and the Syrian border here down in the city of Samandah in the Hatay province of Turkey. You can see a three-story apartment complex behind me that was uh, devastated by the hurricane. And right directly across from it, you can see in the lower left there was a covered community center used for farmers markets and local bazaars. And most of the residents of the nearby buildings had just simply moved into tents, uh, moved into tents underneath the community center cover, cover including this gentleman, Yildre, on the right. He, was, he, was, he and his family lived on the second floor of the apartment building that you saw, that you can see there in the background behind our, our equipment. And he and his wife have three daughters, and they, let, they moved across the street when their home was destroyed in the earthquakes. He was one of the first men out. Uh, we had a team of about, uh, about eight of the locals come out and help us set this system up. And he was one of the first, stayed all the way through. He and his family treated us to dinner uh, when we were all done. We, I wish we had time today to talk about Turkish food. Turkish food's really good. I'm gonna show some pictures, just make you hungry here in a minute, but uh, that's all I can say about it for right now. So that's his youngest daughter on the right. That's the rest, he and the, rest, and the rest of his family posing in front of their, their old home and the new safe water system they will set up on the side. One of the things that, the inter my, one of the things that, our, that uh, our interpreter and I spoke about as we were driving some of the long miles into these areas was just the fact that this is the initial mission field of the church and it is now 95% Muslim. Turkey is officially a Muslim country, although it's not it's not what you typically think of with a Muslim country. If you walk around Adana or many of the other cities, uh, it would look very much like a modern European city, far more than what you think of in a Muslim one. There aren't a lot of head coverings. Everyone's wearing modern clothing. Uh, you know, there's, there are mosques in every street corner where you see churches in the US or Europe. Um, but in many other ways, it's, uh, it's be best described as a post-Muslim country. Uh, a lot of people are, the country, the country is officially secular, even though, even though Islam is the primary religion. And a lot of people, you know, a lot, for a lot of people, I was there during Ramadan in the month of April. And for most people, Ramadan is just treated like we treat Christmas here. It's just a secular holiday. It's a time for feasting and rejoicing and hanging out, giving presents, and nothing more. Get into some other cities, then, then all of a sudden you see the hijabs and the burqas come back. Most of the men were, most of the men were not visible during the day because they were praying for Ramadan. A lot of variety from one city to the next. But it's not, you know, all, but we, you know, my, the interpreter and I just, we continue to talk about and grieve how the fact that where the first initial work, mission work of the church began, where is the testimony of it now? Um, it, this, is, this is the heart of Islam in many, many ways. As a matter of fact, there, we were there over the, uh, over, we were there during the term of the current presidential election. And the future of, uh, future of Turkey's place in the Islamic world is, uh, is a hotly contested political issue over there. There are many, both in Turkey and out, who would like to see Turkey take the place that it once held in the Ottoman Empire as a seat of Islamic power in the world. And there's many others who want nothing to do with that. And that's, that's a debate right now. It's just how much leadership Turkey takes outside of its own borders with the rest of, uh, with the other Muslim nations around it. Very, very influential place in the world. However, it's not completely Muslim. Estimates that, um, that my interpreter gave us say they're out of a population of about 90 million people in the whole country, there's about 10,000 Christians, and that's about it. But, and the bless, but the blessing of being a member of Christian ministry work in the area, you get to meet, meet a lot of those, like our interpreter, and like the leadership of Elijah Orthodox Church in Antakya, 
which brings us back to the Antioch that we read about in Acts. Um, the building doesn't look too bad from the outside. It, I don't have any pictures of the inside, but what I'd seen from some of my colleagues before I got there was basically everything that was standing had fallen to the ground. Um, stonework, pews, pulpit, everything inside was just a pile of rubble inside the building. Uh, it was just, you know, just think about taking a Lego, Lego house and shaking it up. The walls might remain, but everything inside is just going to be trashed. And so when the church, um, so when, uh, when the church kind of picked, started to pick up a few pieces after the earthquake, it, rather than trying to put all their time and energy and resources back into rebuilding their building, they decided to set up a community center uh, on their property. The property was on top of a hill overlooking the historical city of Samanda. You can see on the lower left photo the front portico of the building and then a tent off, to, uh, off at the end. They weren't hosting a, tent, a displacement community like some of the things I've shown you. They were running a, a community kitchen. They had one of the members of the church uh, ran a very popular restaurant in Samanda, which was destroyed during the earthquake. And so he moved in as the permanent resident chef in the community center. They were fixing two meals a day, um, kind of a mid-morning breakfast and dinner. Um, like many places, they were, they were distributing the food, but people weren't eating it right then and there because they were fasting for Ramadan. So they would typically have something to eat after dark, something to feed the children, and then something to eat in the wee hours of the morning for breakfast the next day. And they were, uh, you, can see, you can see Kamal, the, uh, the, the chef, he's just preparing a small lunch for staff at this time. But they were having anywhere from two to 3,000 people a day coming for, both, uh, coming for both food and for the, the safe water from the system that we installed. One of my team members there is doing a water test uh, on the left, and uh, we, uh, we, don't, we don't mark it with that photo too much because that water is supposed to be pink. She'd put testing solution in to check for the appropriate amounts of chlorine. It should be just kind of a nice strawberry color, and instead it's perfectly clear, which in this test is not good because that means the right amount of chlorine that we want to not only purify the water but keep it purified is not present. That led to, um, so we made some adjustments that day. I was back on a future day with just me and the interpreter, i.e. no engineers were present, just the college student and the marketing guy. And turns out, and uh, Father Abtula, who was the priest of the church there in the top left, he get, you know, as soon as we show up, he speaks zero English. Most, there's very little English spoken, spoken in Turkish. Um, so he, in, as soon as we pull up the next day, he comes up and tells us the water's not working. There's no chlorine, and it's not coming out of the taps like it should. And I, my camera got no use that day. Um, I spent the first three quarters, uh, so uh, our interpreter and I spent you know, that, that entire day uh, wrestling with the system, talking to the engineers on the phone, uh, doing video chats and showing them equipment and settings on pumps and other things, trying to figure out what is going on. Uh, we finally got it. We finally got it mostly working by the end of the day. We were hot. We were frustrated. Uh, the, priest, the priest had been kind of riding our backs all day because like, he was reminding us people rely on this stuff. And uh, we finally got back. But when you're on a disaster response, your own individual department's needs always come secondary to keep the water flowing because that's why we're there. We finally got back up. The priest slapped us on the back and told us to go visit an orange grove right behind the church. So up on the hill, uh, there's this beautiful grove of oranges and this little yellow citrus fruit. Um, it's, called, uh, it's called by various names. It tastes like the combination, uh, like a combination of a pear and an orange. It's, del it's absolutely delicious, particularly when you're hot and frustrated. And uh, we ate a ton of these things and just kind of sat and relaxed. And one of the things that struck us was, more so than you know, anywhere else we visited, was just a pervading sense of peace. 
and this church had just poured themselves into their local community. And uh, I, I don't mean to give Father Abdul a hard time. He, uh, he was an amazing man. He sp- you know, even if he can't speak your language, he would take you by the hand, shake your hand warmly, look you in the eye, and you, could, you got this sense he could just see right through you. He, uh, he knew people so, so well, and, has, and his love for people was very, very evident, uh, particularly in all that his church was doing. I put this photo of this cat down here because he was prowling around the orange grove while we were there. Um, cats and dogs are very, very popular in Turkey. People love cats and dogs. They're all over the place. And they don't, you know, people have them as pets, but they're more just kind of, remember, you know, they're more like what we would call strays. And they just live wherever they can. And the thing that you'll see, particularly with the dogs, is they don't look like stray dogs here in the U.S. They're fat. They are so fat. They're like, whenever you see them, they're just kind of sprawled out on their side of their tongue hanging out looking like they ate too much to move. Uh, I've got a picture of them on front of a restaurant we went to one night, and literally whatever we didn't finish from dinner that night, they just took it out to the street and fed it to the dogs out front. We're talking about high-quality lamb kebabs being fed to stray dogs who just took one look at it like, no, nope, I can't. <laughs> you see this everywhere. Uh, this cat I love. Do you all remember, who's read, who's read The Horse and His Boy from the Chronicles of Narnia? All right, do you remember the scene where Aslan is with Shasta, the lead character, and is looking after him inside the tombs? It's not Aslan the lion at that point. It's a big, large tabby cat. And I believe this tabby cat was what Aslan must have looked like because not only, uh, not only was, a, was he a big, confident tom, but he had these weird, swirly patterns on the side that I've never seen in a tabby before. Um, and, of course, very famously, the name Aslan, Lewis took from the Turkish word for lion. Those are, some of the, uh, those are some of the oranges there. The other fruit is called, here in the U.S., either called a loquat or a Japanese plum. They, uh, they grow a lot down in Charleston, actually. And um, people there don't even know they should eat them. They're really good. There's a photo of most of the team out for dinner one evening. The last thing I want to talk about, though, is just um, the top left photo was taken from a fellowship meal at a small Protestant church in Adana. So again, this is outside of the, this is outside of the earthquake zone um, in the city where our hotel was. When I first got off the plane in Adana two weeks, uh, about, a, about a week before this, no, actually about a week and a half before this photo was taken, um, Adana Airport is very, very small. Uh, I get off the plane, run all my stuff through the security, you know, they do a security check both on and off the plane. As soon as I step out, it's nine o'clock at night, it's pitch dark, there's very, very little lighting. And right then, the call to prayer goes up for the local mosques. And it's like, okay, I am in a very different country right now. Everybody's walking, um, you know, you've got paramilitary guys walking around with AK-47s and, you know, 1911s strapped to their waist. And it's like, that, you know, that wasn't, a, the call to prayer was weirder than that. That just looks like upstate South Carolina. <laughs> um, but I have to kind of, I have to kind of, I have to get some, you know, I figure out how to get some Turkish currency I figure out how to get, you know, get a, you know, get a taxi over to the hotel, and that's kind of my introduction to it. And so what was so sweet about this little Protestant church that we visited is it felt just like Trinity in so many ways. I mean, they were speaking Turkish, so I couldn't t- understand anything, but other than that, it felt just like worship with y'all in many, many ways. It was actually even better than that. The sermon, the whole order of worship, all the songs, the prayer, everything was in Turkish, of course, um, but they had a guest pastor in. He was an evangelist and an illusionist who was from Puerto Rico. He was friends with the senior pastor, and so he delivered the sermon that day in Spanish. I can't tell you how good Spanish sounds in Turkey. Uh, it's like, ah, yes, a North American language. 
even though I couldn't understand that either. <laughs> but I heard enough Esau, which is Jesus in Turkish, and Jesus, which is, of course, in Spanish, to know, okay, they're, they're, they're preaching about a guy I know. And it's just so beautiful. The, the, the guest pastor would preach in Spanish a few words, and then the senior pastor would translate into Turkish, and it was no help to me whatsoever. But it was just amazing to hear the, the God I love being preached in languages I didn't understand, to people that, you know, you know, people I couldn't talk to, but we all had something in common. Because we were one of about just a small group of 30, 35 people meeting this tiny little Protestant church. It wasn't, per se, underground. Um, it's Turkey, you know, Turkey's a little more, you know, parts of Turkey are a little more open to other faiths than other parts of the Middle East, and yet, they, but they weren't, they didn't have a big sign out front like we did, let's put it that way. And so you had to kind of be, and there were a few times where I had to be, I was told to put the camera down, or yay, that last photo you taken, mm, we don't want to be recorded right now. You had to be careful. But after the worship service, they had a fellowship meal. One of the ladies of the church uh, would volunteer every week to cook a meal for the rest. Um, I'm sorry, that's, a, that, that's our interpreter on the left. That's a very unflattering picture of him. So I also put this picture of him on the right. He's holding a bit of Turkish delight. It's disgusting in the United States, but it's actually pretty good in Turkey. You can pick it up at any gas station uh, on the way. And in front of him is an empty teacup. Uh, you, you drink chai everywhere you go. It's just part of Turkish hospitality. They offered a cup of chai, a cup of chai, and it's really, really good. I, I kind of missed that when I came back home. God preserves his people wherever they are in the world. What you can't see here is off, just off the left, there's a huge pile of supplies. Uh, the sanctuary at had, you know, just had lines, you know, stacks of boxes up to the ceiling of resources that this tiny little church uh, was getting ready to send down to the southern part of the country where the earthquake was. They, uh, and they'd been doing this for months. You know, they have, you know, it would be enough just to be meeting to worship the Lord Jesus in the middle of Turkey. They're like, no, we want to help. So they, you know, there were supplies that had come in and being distributed out of this church uh, from everywhere. And then, of course, there was the fact that we were there with, you know, we were there with, with, uh, with people from Turkey, you know, people traveling from the U.S., Yefri coming from Indonesia. All of us were there because, well, it was our jobs, but also because, uh, you know, because of the love for the Lord and the chance that we had to serve in this part of the world. And I think that was one of the best parts. Is just realizing that even in the midst of, you know, even in the midst of one of the most influential Islamic countries in the world, Christ's testimony, his remnant, remains. And the, sign, you know, sign that, and the signs of their work and his grace was evident in the places we saw. And, you know, I could go over there and immediately have that rapport. Um, you know, as soon as we sat down for lunch, they sent everybody who could speak English over to talk to us. Uh, and it's, you know, it's very interesting. We had the guest pastor from Puerto Rico, the music director and his wife had been there for about two years. They were missionaries from Mexico. And this, uh, you know, this helped me get over a lot of my misconceptions about the state of world missions. It's not all from the U.S. like we sometimes think. There were, you know, these were Baptist missionaries from, the heart of, from Mexico who'd been there for years. And they spoke perfect Spanish, Turkish, and English. And I felt very inferior. <laughs> and uh, it's just a beautiful, and it's a beautiful thing to be there in the midst of the need and be meeting the people who are trying to fulfill it. Uh, who share the faith that we do. All right, this is a shameless marketing plug, because remember the marketing part, that's what I do. If you'd, love to learn, if you'd like to learn more about uh, Water Mission, uh, we're actually doing a fundraiser in public awareness in Greenville coming up in November. We 
Uh, Fifteen years ago, George and Molly started the Walk for Water in Charleston. They got all their Charleston friends together, and they said, we're going to walk, we're going to pick up buckets, and we're going to walk for a mile and a half, we're going to fill them with dirty, nasty water, as only Charleston can produce. And we're going to, and we're going to walk a mile and a half back, and we're going to run them through one of our filtration systems and let people see the murky, brown, brackish water go in one side and the clear, safe water come out the other. We're going to recreate the experience of many, many people around the world who have to walk long and hard on dusty roads to collect water that's going to make them sick. And, what we're, going to sh- and we're going to give people what it's like to carry just, I mean, we carry tiny little buckets. We carry tiny little, you know, two and a half gallon buckets. Most people are doing like five gallons or more. And most of them are 11-year-old girls. And it's amazing to see the big strapping guys start to dump the water out of their two and a half gallon buckets because it gets heavy as you go along. And so we do this for public awareness in Charleston every year, and uses a fundraiser as well, and we're act- and we're, but we're doing more and more of these around the country. This will be the second year for the Greenville Walk. Website's up there. You can ask me questions uh, if you're interested to learn more. Are there any questions about anything we've talked about today? Anything I can share? Yeah, Mom. Yeah, well, UNICEF is not a federal thing. UNICEF is what we call a para, para, is kind of a intermediate, is non-governmental organization. Um, they have a lot of influence across nations, but they're not of any particular nation. Yeah, we're not as well known as them, but we do work with them a lot. Um, and that's, uh, they're an interesting partner because they don't care much for the Christian side of our work. Um, but one of, our, one of our favorite verses is the one in Proverbs where it says, do you see a man skilled in his work? He'll stand before kings. Uh, there's a lot of people who like to work, who work with us because they respect the quality of the work we do, and they just say, all right, you guys do your Christian thing, and just pre- we're going to pretend we don't know about that. Um, so as far as uh, well-known, we're, we're pretty small. Yeah, we're pretty, compared to the big charities in the world like Samaritan's Purse, just, you know, just up the road in North Carolina, yeah, just up the road in Charlotte, or Compassion, or World Vision, we're, we're pretty small potatoes. Uh, but we are also one of the first water organizations on the ground when a disaster hits. As a matter of fact, I've been, I've been communicating with our director of disaster response and a couple other team members all over the weekend because there was another earthquake in Morocco um, on, on Friday. And uh, we're, start, we're starting to look. We try to go wherever we can help. So we're in, the, we're in the process of trying to decide, can we help right now? That's a good thing to pray for. It's hard. They speak Arabic, and Arabic and Turkish are very, very different languages. So uh, usually, you know, usually a lot of Turks will have a kind of a working knowledge of Arabic just because a lot of the nations around them will speak it, um, but not always. So communication is tough. They're usually having to go through translators, or hopefully they picked up enough Turkish during their stay there to be able to communicate. Yeah, yeah Timothy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. We go when there are disaster. You know, we're always preparing for disasters. We're always trying to be in a place to help when they happen. But our, you know, kind of our bread and butter is uh, what we call community development, and that's where we're. That's the that's the more permanent systems I show you are designed to be deployed quickly. What we're doing in, you know, in established communities and developing developing areas of the world is building more permanent solutions. 
And those, those could look very, very different uh, because we always custom design every solution we put in in, you know, in established communities. Because we don't, we don't want to just get there and get water flowing and say, we're out of here. Because that's the way a lot, that's the way a lot, <laughs> that's a whole rabbit trail we could go down. That's the way a lot of charities work. Like, let's just throw some money and equipment at this thing and then get out of here someone else. We can take some nice pictures for the you know, folks back home and we're done. Trouble is, six months later, you know, nobody's been taught how to maintain, how to use that stuff. It's all just rusting, you know, rusting in the community. So we go in, we spend, we spend six to 12 months with every project we do. And for the first couple of months, we're not doing any work that you could see. We're just talking to people and saying, here's what we can do, here's what we think you need, do you want it? Because when we're done, this is gonna be yours. And you're not only gonna have to, you know, you're not only gonna have to run it, you're gonna have to maintain it. You're gonna have to do it. We're gonna talk to you about not just how to pump water or how to filter it, we're gonna talk to you about financial models. We're going to talk to you about the, you know, how you should charge for this. Uh, because you need, you know, we're going to make it affordable, but you're going to, you know, there's going to need to be something because we use the best stuff in the world. We use the best water equipment in the world, but it still breaks down. And, you know, a couple of years from now, you're going to have to replace this pump, this chlorination system. Your tank's going to develop a crack. You're going to have to fix it. That means you're going to need to have resources on the other, you're going to need to have the resources actually put back into this. And so that's what we're doing most of the, most of the time is trying to work with community, find the communities where we can help, and more importantly, who want, who want, to, help, you know, want to help themselves in these situations. Yeah, babe. How many do you have Oh, yeah. So headquarters is in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm glad you asked that. We have, not, <clears throat> we have permanent offices in nine other countries, um, in, South, in, in, North, in uh, Central and South America, in, uh, in four countries in Africa and then in Indonesia, uh, as I mentioned. So, actually, let me make sure I can get them all right. We're in Mexico, Honduras, South America. We're in Kenya, Malawi, Uganda, and Tanzania. And we're in, uh, and then we're in, uh, uh, we're in Indonesia as well. And essentially, most of those places have, uh, most, many of those offices were established because we went in for, to respond to a disaster. And then we found out even before the disaster happened, there was a lot of need for water here. And so we will set up an office, and then we'll start hiring locally. 98% um, of our staff outside the U.S. are all locally hired, come with their own expertise, their own desire, in many cases, their own experiences of both need and solutions that we'll be able to provide. And they say, hey, I want to do this for others. And so they'll come in. And uh, that's... And so with that, so we'll, you know, we'll pull from the local talent pool and set up the offices, and that's that's where the magic happens, honestly. You know, as much as I respect and love my, you know, the engineers at the U.S., they're really there just equipping the folks in the permanent offices to do the do the work for this. And with that, yep, I think we are at time. So happy to talk to anybody else has questions. Appreciate your attention this morning, and uh, your patience sitting in the dark. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. I Lord God, we lift up your church around the world as we prepare to join it, join her in worship, your worship today. Lord, we thank you for those on the other side of the world who've already worshipped. We thank you for those going the other direction who are, are just getting up and getting their day started. Lord, we pray that your word would go forth with great power from the pulpit of this church and from the pulpit of church, uh, that church in Adana and from the pulpit of churches in Indonesia and Taiwan and China. Uh, Lord God, in Mexico... Lord, in Mexico, and Argentina, and Tanzania, Lord, wherever your name is called upon, I pray you would gather your people today and preach your gospel to them, and I pray that you would please shape, and I pray that they would be known to the rest of the world by their love for one another. 
even as we are. In Jesus' name, amen.